You're listening to a sermon from Darabin Presbyterian Church. Visit us online for more resources or to get in touch. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, isn't he the man that raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on this name? And hasn't he come to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. After many days had gone by, there was a conspiracy among the Jews to kill him. But Saul learnt of their plan. Day and night they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and how the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the Hellenistic Jews, but they tried to kill him. When the believers learnt of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened. Living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, it increased in numbers. Uh, thanks, Steph. It's always a bit of an exodus when the kids leave. Uh, so if you want to, you're welcome to come up closer. Some of you feel a very long way away. But anyway, that's, that's okay. Uh, if I haven't met you, I, I was my first Sunday back after long service leave uh, last Sunday, so there are some new people that I haven't met before. Would love to meet you after church, but my name's Aaron if we haven't met before. I'm one of the pastors here at DPC. Uh, there's an outline of my sermon on the welcome card that's been referenced a couple of times. It'd be great if you could have Acts chapter 9 open. We really need God's help, so let's pray. Father, please, uh, please do watch over us. Uh, please speak to us. Uh, please, in particular, open our eyes, uh, our hearts, our minds to experience afresh uh, something of what it means to belong to Jesus, your son. Uh, in his name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> yeah, so I guess I wanted to start by asking you the question. I wonder what the people or groups that you belong to kind of bring into your life. How do they impact your life or change your life? Uh, for example, uh, since as long as I can remember, I've belonged to the Melbourne Football Club. You know, some people think it's a bit funny, uh, the kind of, you know, pastor cheering on the demons. I've heard all the jokes before. Uh, maybe I should barrack for the saints, you know, that kind of uh, joke. But anyway, I've always, uh, I've always belonged to the Melbourne Footy Club. And for the most part, belonging to the Melbourne Footy Club has brought continual pain and misery into my life. Only kind of, kind of exemplified by Friday night's experience. And so... Continual pain and misery, except last year. A glimpse of glory and joy as we finally won a premiership. The first in my lifetime. What a great thing. Right? I wonder what the people or groups you belong to bring into your life. Yeah, that's a little bit of a joke. Maybe a little bit more serious. Of course, I also belong to the Boyd family, my kind of immediate kind of biological family. 
uh, and belonging to the Boyd family has brought all sorts of blessings into my life. Uh, lots of wisdom and love and care. Uh, in particular, the, the wonderful thing of being brought up in a family uh, where people, uh, where my parents uh, took me to church and, and taught me how to trust in Jesus, how to follow him. All sorts of blessings in being in the Boyd family. And yet, being in the Boyd family has also brought blindness into my life. That's a reality. You know, some families have a kind of predisposition to a particular type of cancer. Others, it's diabetes. Others, it's some other chronic condition. Uh, others, it's heart disease of some kind. Well, whatever it is, in my family, there's a genetic eye condition that causes people to go blind. So belonging to the Boyd family has brought countless blessings and some tough things too. But what about you? What do the people or groups that you belong to bring into your life? How do they change or transform your life? It's an interesting question to think about. If you're here and you're a Christian, uh, what does belonging to Jesus bring into your life? As you think, in particular, how does the fact that you belong to Jesus through faith in him change your life or impact your life? And of course, the Bible has all sorts of things to say about how belonging to Jesus transforms the lives of Christians, right? A lot beyond Acts chapter 9, verses 19 to 31. Uh, but in today's passage, in particular, uh, we do see that belonging to Jesus means three things. First, it means you belong to Jesus' people. Second, it means you proclaim Jesus' name. And third, it means you suffer for Jesus' name. So we're going to explore each of those things in turn. First, if you want to take a look at the second half of verse 19, you'll see that Saul comes to belong to the Lord's people, Jesus' people in Damascus, largely thanks to the ministry of Ananias. We met Ananias last week. We're continuing where we left off. Luke says there in the second half of verse 19, Saul spent several days uh, with the disciples, that's the disciples of Jesus, in Damascus. Uh, which is maybe a detail we could skip over, but it's actually pretty incredible. Remember, who, who was Saul going to Damascus? What was he going to Damascus for? It was to arrest and imprison and ultimately execute anyone who was a disciple of Jesus. So it's pretty incredible, isn't it? it just, uh, that just a short time after that, those very same disciples are happy for Saul to hang out with them for, hang out with them for a few days. Well, what's brought about this incredible change? It's that Jesus' disciples uh, in Damascus are convinced that Saul now belongs to Jesus. He really has become a Christian. They're convinced of that. And so he also belongs to them as Jesus' people. I don't know if you've thought about this, but this is one of the real joys and privileges of becoming and being a Christian. It's that even if you feel like you belong nowhere else, go to school, you feel like you don't belong, go to mother's group, you feel like you don't belong, go to work, you feel like you don't belong, go to university lectures, you feel like you don't belong, you feel like you don't belong anywhere else, but if you belong to Jesus, you always belong to Jesus' people. You have a deep spiritual union, spiritual connection, not just with Jesus, but with his people who are also united with Jesus. It's a great joy of the Christian life. And Saul's coming to experience that for the very first time amongst the Lord's disciples in Damascus. 
And we saw last week that the main person that helped him to begin to experience this deep sense of belonging with the Lord's people was Ananias. It was Ananias who the Lord called to help introduce Saul into the church in Damascus. As I was thinking about this uh, this week, and I thought, wouldn't it be wonderful uh, if at DPC all of us were just a little bit more like Ananias? Which is not to say we're not a welcoming church. I think overall we're doing a great job of being a welcoming church. But I do think that sometimes we might think, oh, welcoming's for those other people. I see that there's a new person over there, but I'm sure someone else will connect with them. Or we've kind of outsourced that to the welcoming team each Sunday. Wouldn't it be great if all of us took, uh, took the initiative for ourselves to welcome someone else into our church, to introduce them to some other people at church? Now, that's what Ananias has done for Saul. And now I know like, this is going to become really easily for some of us and really, it's going to be really difficult for others. I'm someone who doesn't mind connecting with new people. If you're new to DBC, come and talk to me. I love meeting new people. Other people find it really difficult. I get that. You find it really hard, like way out of your comfort zone to meet new people all the time and it just feels safer to hang out with people that you know. I understand that. We've all got different personalities, different temperaments. But we do have to remember that as a community that's kind of trying to live a life that's shaped by the gospel, uh, that our Lord Jesus stepped a fair way out of his comfort zone so that we could be welcomed into God's people from heaven to earth, not just across a room, (laughs) bearing cost and pain. And so it's not that it's unfitting for us to step out of our comfort zone for the sake of welcoming new people into our church. So let me encourage you to, to think about that. And in particular, uh, one of the things that would be really welcoming for new people uh, is if all of us here at DPC uh, made a real effort to get here a little bit earlier. I mean, like, uh, you know, I, I'm not taking a big stick out, right? But one of the things is that when you're going to church for the very first time, there's all sorts of things that you don't know. You don't know if you're going to be able to find a park. You don't know how far away you're going to find a park. Uh, You don't know where the toilets are, if you're going to need to go, if you've got children, you don't know how the kids' programs work, all sorts of things that you don't understand. Uh, And what does that mean? It means people who are new and visiting church tend to arrive early. When you become a regular, you know the drill and you tend to arrive right on time or a bit late. Now, that's fine, perfectly understandable. It's just that it often means that right on time or a little bit before four, there's a bunch of new people here with few people to welcome them. So I'm saying, hey, why don't you you think about how you could plan your Sunday afternoon to try to get here a little bit earlier for the sake of loving and welcoming and introducing new people out to our church, to others, to yourselves? Uh, To boot, it has a great blessing uh, to the service leader and the music team who've been here since three o'clock practising their songs. It's just a bit of a shame if there's no one here for Adam's call to worship or something. You know, like it's a blessing to your brothers and sisters in Christ too. So let me encourage you to think about that. How can we be a more welcoming church, introducing to our, midst, our people to our midst, uh, welcoming and accepting them in Jesus' name? And that's what Ananias has done for Saul. Uh, but Saul wasn't just kind of bunkering down with his new church family. Right? Remember uh, that in verses 15 and 16, if you scan back, uh, you'll see uh, Jesus said Saul was going to proclaim his name and suffer for his name. 
And in verses 20 to 25, we see the beginning of both those kind of aspects of Saul's ministry. So first, in verses 20 to 22, Saul is powerfully proclaiming Jesus' name. Let's look at verse 20. Luke says, At once Saul began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. Again, that's pretty amazing, isn't it? Saul was on his way to Damascus just a few days before this to arrest and imprison anyone who believed that Jesus was the Son of God. He hated the idea that that people would be proclaiming that Jesus was the Son of God. And yet now he's met Jesus, Jesus raised from the dead, Jesus in glory, and it's turned his life upside down. Here he is proclaiming that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, if you scan down at verse uh, 22, uh, if you look at verse 22, you'll see there uh, that Paul is also proclaiming or proving that Jesus is the Messiah. So I think when Luke says uh, Saul is proclaiming that Jesus is the Son of God, he's not mainly saying that Saul is proclaiming Jesus to be the kind of second person of the Trinity, you know, Father, Son of God and Spirit, Although Saul does believe that, we know that from his other writings in the New Testament, and we believe that as Christians. But I think here Saul is mainly proving that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. The one who's described in the Old Testament in places like 2 Samuel chapter 7, uh, the, the descendant of David, God's chosen and promised and anointed king, the Son of God, who's going to establish and rule over God's kingdom bringing all the wonderful blessings of heaven down to earth. Uh, So Paul's proclaiming that Jesus is the Son of God. And notice how the crowds respond. Verse 21. uh, All those who heard uh, were astonished and asked, uh, isn't this the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem? Uh, And, uh, sorry, uh, among those who call on this name, that's on the name of Jesus... And hasn't he come here uh, to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? The people just don't get how it's Saul who can be proclaiming this message. They're clued in to this incredible transformation that's taking place. And imagine if you were in their shoes. You've heard about all that Saul has done in Jerusalem in arresting Christians. You've heard that he's going to come to Damascus and arrest Christians. He's got these arrest warrants from the high priests Maybe you might be thinking, wait a second, is this whole Saul declaring Jesus to be the Son of God, is it all just a trick? Like maybe he's just trying to lure the Christians out so that he can arrest them and take them back to the high priests. There's got to have been some doubts about Saul's ministry. And we don't know who reassured the crowd so that Saul was able to keep on preaching, but I wouldn't be surprised if it was again Ananias. That's speculative, I get that. But someone must have vouched for Saul. Someone must have been spreading the word. No, 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 he really has become a Christian. He really does believe this message that he's proclaiming. However it happened, Luke says, Saul's able to continue preaching and his preaching becomes more and more powerful which is amazing. I don't know if you've ever heard. I mean, there's sermons and then there's sermons, aren't there? Some sermons, you know, you listen to them. You might be thinking, yep, that's what I'm experiencing today. But, you know, you, you listen to them and then two seconds later you've forgotten them. Other sermons come with some 
different kind of power. Saul's preaching is becoming more and more powerful. Where does the power come from? Well, if you look back in verse 17, it comes from the power of the Holy Spirit. Remember that Luke said that after Saul became a Christian, he was filled with the Holy Spirit. If you look back later on in Luke chapter 24, uh, Luke's gospel, uh, and in the start of the book of Acts, Jesus tells his disciples in both places, I want you to bear witness for me. I want you to go into all the world and tell people about who I am and what I've done, but you don't do that uh, until you're clothed with the power of the Holy Spirit. You must be filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, not just so that you can be assured of God's love for you as his child. We talked about that last week. But also to be empowered to share the message about Jesus. And that's what's happening for Saul here. He's filled with the power of the Spirit, so he's proclaiming the message with great power. So this is pretty... I mean, just think about Ananias' ministry. He's introduced Saul to the church... I think he's probably played a role in giving Saul space to test and develop his new gifts in preaching about Jesus in the synagogue in Damascus. And I reckon all of us need someone a little bit like Ananias. Someone who's going to create space for us so that we can test out the gifts that God might have given us. Keep developing them so that we can use them all the more powerfully. Uh, I still remember uh, my youth group leader at Neil Street Uniting Church in Bendigo. Uh, he used to lead all the Bible studies, but then one week he said, Aaron, why don't you have a go at leading a Bible study? The first time ever I'd had a go. And I thought, oh, I reckon I, might, I reckon I might like to teach the Bible. I enjoyed doing that. I wasn't very good, right, but I enjoyed it. And Greg encouraged me. And a few years later, I was at Bendigo Baptist Church and Pastor Dave Lovell, who's still the pastor up there, he encouraged me to have a go at doing some short evangelistic talks in their local high school ministry. I was terrified, but I had a go and he encouraged me and he trained me and he coached me and I got a little bit better. And then I went to do an apprenticeship with Peter Leslie, who's not here today. Hi, Pete, if you're watching online. Uh, but... I did an apprenticeship with Pete at Latrobe, uh, and he gave me all sorts of opportunities to practice teaching the Bible. And, and through all of this, through all of these people who are a little bit like Ananias, giving me a bit of space to try out my gifts, over time, I'm not saying I've become more and more powerful, right? But I've gotten a bit better. I've had opportunities to test and develop my gifts. And, and so I'm wondering, uh, is there anyone here at DPC that you could be doing that with right now? Have a think. Is there anyone where you've observed them serving in a particular ministry and you've thought to yourself, hey, you're actually really good at that, but you've never told them that? I wonder if there's someone where you could say, actually, you know, when you served in that way, you were a real blessing to me. I think you might have some gifts in that. You should keep doing it. Like, we all need that kind of affirmation from others. And maybe you could say, hey, are there any ways where we could help you and encourage you and help you to develop those gifts all the more? Just something to think about. We want to have a culture where we can speak words of encouragement to one another, uh, where we see some giftedness in someone else's life. So part of belonging to Jesus is powerfully proclaiming 
his name. We see that in Saul's life. And of course, Saul, I'm not trying to say that we're exactly the same as Saul. Saul is an apostle of Jesus. He's got kind of unique power and authority, a unique calling and mission. I get all that. But in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, scan back there, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus does tell all his disciples to bear witness to him into all the nations, to the ends of the earth. This is something that all of us are called to do as Christians, to speak words that point people to Jesus, who he is and what he's done. That's what it means to bear witness to Jesus. And Jesus says, don't do that until you've received the power of the Holy Spirit. So he says here in Acts chapter 1. And so... This is something that all of us are called to, to proclaim Jesus' name, to share Jesus' name with power. Now, let's be honest. Most of us, if we talk to our family or friends about Jesus at all, including me, feel like our words aren't that powerful. We feel like our words are pretty weak and ineffective. We say stuff and it's like it's hitting a brick wall or just falling to the ground and... We don't feel like our words have power to change anyone's life. The only person who changes people's lives is the person of the Holy Spirit. And so let me encourage you, if you feel just weak and powerless in your efforts to talk to people about Jesus, why don't you join me in praying? Pray to Jesus. Say, Jesus, you know that I I really love my family and friends, my neighbours, my colleagues. You know I want them to come to know Jesus. But that's only going to happen if you take up my words, my weak words, by the power of your spirit and bring real spiritual change in their lives. I wonder if you've ever prayed that sort of prayer on your way to work or mainly music, mother's group, coffee with a friend. I reckon if we all started praying that, I need to pray it more often, that we might experience our words to be more powerful to change people's lives. So belonging to Jesus means belonging to his people. It means powerfully proclaiming his name. And third, it means suffering in Jesus' name. Saul begins to suffer in that way uh, in verses 23 to 26. Uh, So if you look in verse uh, 23, uh, Luke says that after many days, a conspiracy arose among the Jews, um, excuse me, among some of the Jews in Damascus uh, to kill Saul. And this opposition in Damascus ultimately escalates to the point that in verses 24 and 25, Saul gets wind of the plan, the conspiracy to kill him. And in verse 25, the disciples in Damascus work out a way for him to escape the city and go up to Jerusalem. Now, there are some questions here that I was going to explore about how Acts chapter 9 fits together with Galatians chapter 1 and kind of the chronology of what Saul does. We don't have time for me to explore all of that today, but if you want to talk to me about it, I'd be happy to chat about it after. The point is that this experience, this initial experience in Damascus, is a sign of everything that's to come for Saul. He's going to be someone who lives his life under the constant threat of arrest, of imprisonment, of execution. He's going to live his life suffering for Jesus' name. And we saw last week that as much as there's a uniqueness to Paul's suffering, uh, the reality is all of us in the Christian life are called to suffer for Jesus' name because we're in that deep spiritual union with him. Jesus says if he suffered, we will suffer. If he was hated, we will be hated at times. 
If he was insulted, we will be insulted. And we're all going to suffer. This is the calling of the Christian life. Jesus says, if you want to follow me, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. It's a path of suffering and self-denial. This is Jesus' kind of evangelism 101. There's not a lot of benefits in it, is it? <laughs> if, we were, if I was Jesus, I'd say, don't, 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 don't. talk about the positive stuff more first, right? Jesus says, no, 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 it's a path of suffering. So why would you walk that path of suffering? Well, I reckon you'd only walk it if you're deeply convinced that Jesus has been raised from the dead. That's what's happened for Saul. He's seen Jesus raised from the dead. So Saul, also known as Paul, later in the New Testament in 1 Corinthians 15, says, if Christ wasn't raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. See what he's saying? He's saying, if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, then we as Christians should just get on with living like everyone else. If this life is all there is, then we should adopt the philosophy of maximising our pleasure now and minimising our pain. Why embrace a life of suffering? The only reason you would do that is if you were deeply persuaded that Jesus was raised from the dead. That is our main proof as Christians that this life is not all there is. And so we can embrace a life of suffering now because we know that there's eternal glory and pleasure and bliss that awaits us. So let me urge you to embrace this life of suffering as Saul did. And if you're not sure, if you have doubts about whether you want to do that, let me encourage you to explore the historical evidence for why Jesus was raised from the dead. Why not all of us get to get the kind of blessing that Saul got of having Jesus appear to us in his resurrected glory? I know that. What we get is Saul's testimony about that, the historical testimony of all the apostles in the Bible. So let me encourage you to explore that and pray that God's Spirit would deepen your convictions that Jesus has been raised from the dead so you don't need your best life now. You can suffer in Jesus' name now, for you know that there's eternal glory waiting for you later on. Now that's Saul. And in verses 26 to 30, uh, we see again this kind of bookend of the passage. This time Saul finds his place of belonging, not in Damascus, but in Jerusalem. Not through Ananias, but through Barnabas. As I notice verse 26, the first thing that Saul does when he arrives in Jerusalem is he seeks out the Lord's disciples. It's very much a side note, not the main point of the passage. Uh, but this is a key mark of someone who really has become a Christian. Well, they're someone who knows that wherever they are, they've got to find Jesus' people. One of the first priorities is that if I belong to Jesus, I belong with Jesus' people. So let me encourage you, if you're someone who's here today and you're checking out church, maybe you're in between churches, maybe you've moved from overseas or another town to study at university, and maybe you've moved from a different part of the city or the state, you've moved into the area for a new job, Whatever it is, somehow maybe you're checking out church for the very first time in your life. What I want to say is don't let that process of seeking out a place with Jesus' people drift on too long. If you belong to Jesus, you belong with Jesus' people. 
I'm not saying you belong only here at DPC, though we'd love to welcome you as a part of Jesus' people here. But I am saying that if you belong to Jesus, you belong with Jesus' people. I don't drift in that kind of disconnected phase for too long. So Saul, he arrives in Jerusalem, he seeks out a church uh, really quickly. Uh, Of course, things are a bit more complicated for Saul. Uh, Take a look there. He tries to seek out the church, but Luke says, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. Now, we we might think, uh, well, that's a little bit rough on Saul. Actually, they should have just welcomed him in. You've got to remember, uh, these people probably, this again goes back to the chronology thing, but I suspect that from events of Acts chapter 8, about three years has passed by the time Saul is back in Jerusalem. So these Christians in Jerusalem haven't seen Saul for three years. And on top of that, the last time they did see him, what was he doing? He was violently knocking on their door, trying to arrest them and imprison them. So you can understand that they're a little bit unsure about Saul joining their church. Like if that experience happened today, someone that was you know, three years ago knocking on your door wanting to arrest you, then they rock up at church, you're not that keen to invite them to the newcomer's dinner next week. Like you're just holding your you know, um, cards close to your chest. Anyway, so that's what Saul's experience is. And yet Barnabas welcomes Saul. Look in verse 27. Luke says, but Barnabas... A Barnabas, whose name kind of very appropriately means son of encouragement. But Barnabas took Saul and brought him to the apostles. Now, we know from Galatians chapter 1 that Barnabas took Saul and introduced him to uh, Peter and James, the kind of influential leaders in the early church. And Saul got to spend about 15 days with the apostles in Jerusalem. It's not clear exactly why Barnabas did this. Maybe he's just a naturally kind of encouraging person. Maybe he wasn't in Jerusalem when the previous events were happening. Maybe Saul took him aside and said, hey, here's my story. I don't know, maybe he has connections in Damascus and word had spread about the change in Saul's life. I don't know. But whatever the case, Barnabas was willing to stick his neck on the line for Saul. He was willing to vouch for Saul before the senior leaders of the church to say, Saul, uh, look, at, look at what he says. He tells the apostles of how Saul, uh, on his journey to Damascus, had seen the Lord uh, and that the Lord had spoken to him. Barnabas is saying he really has met with the Lord Jesus. His life has been transformed. I know it's hard to believe. You can almost hear, you know, I know it's hard to believe. But he really has become a Christian, not just become a Christian, but Barnabas says, uh, down in Damascus, he's been fearlessly proclaiming Jesus' name. So thanks to Barnabas, in verses 28 uh, and 29, Saul is welcomed into the Lord's people in Jerusalem and he's able to continue his proclaiming ministry in Jerusalem. But you see the pattern. Proclaiming Jesus' name leads to suffering for Jesus' name. Verses 29 and 30, opposition comes up again and Saul's forced to flee Jerusalem to his hometown of Tarsus. So just kind of take a second to you know, imagine we've been zoomed in on the details of this passage. Maybe just kind of zoom out a little bit and think about the big picture 
of Acts chapter 9 or even Acts chapters 8 and 9. Where did the chapter start? It started with Saul breathing out murderous threats. And what was he doing? He was off to Damascus to arrest and imprison anyone who belonged to the way of Jesus. Any Christian. Any Christian, mind you, who'd fled Jerusalem to get away from him to go to Damascus. Now what have we got? At the end of the chapter, we've got Saul fleeing Jerusalem. Saul fleeing Jerusalem as a Christian. As one who is under threat of arrest and imprisonment, even death. And what's right in the middle of Acts chapter 9, what has changed everything? It's the fact that Saul met Jesus. Jesus appeared to Saul. Jesus spoke to Saul. He saw the Lord. The Lord spoke to him. And it turned his life upside down. That's this chapter and how it fits together. I wonder if you have met Jesus like that. In a way that has not just kind of made some small tweaks to your life, but radical changes to your life. I remember, I guess, when this happened for, for me, to an extent, again, I'm not Saul, but at the National Christian Youth Convention in 2001... Uh, I remember I was there and I was listening to Michael Frost, who's a Christian leader up in in Sydney, and uh, he was talking about uh, Jesus' call to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow him. And he was particularly saying that some of you here in this conference ought to do that uh, and take the message of of Jesus uh, in a full-time sense, entering into full-time Christian ministry. And in that moment... 18, well, 17 years old, I thought that Jesus is saying this to me. I've got to respond to this call. And you might say, well, of course, you know, conference hype, get caught up in it. But for me, that was an incredible moment of the Lord speaking to me. I came home between year 11 and year 12. I told my parents straight away I was going to be a youth pastor. I went to the senior secondary college and changed my subjects for year 12. And so I went and met with the coordinator and I said, I'm going to be a youth pastor and uh, youth pastors don't really need much maths. I just need to calculate the number of snacks that you need or something. Uh, Don't need trigonometry or anything complex like that. So I didn't do maths in year 12. I don't need to know German, right? And so I'm dropping German as well. You can imagine my parents who weren't at the conference were freaking out. But to me, it made complete sense. Why? Because I'd met with Jesus. That's if I'm honest, like I really look back at that moment as a moment when the Lord appeared to me and spoke to me and turned my life upside down. And let me say, this is what I want for us as a church, more and more, for this to be the experience of people who hang out at DPC when they come to church or a gospel community, when they meet with people from DPC, that it's not just about a transfer of information about Jesus, but it's actually experience of meeting with Jesus. That's what we all need. That's what people in our community need, to meet with Jesus and have him turn their life upside down for the better. Well, Saul's fled uh, from Jerusalem and you'd think that maybe with a key leader needing to leave the church that things would go backwards, uh, but not so much. Verse 31, things just kick off all the more. The church keeps growing in both maturity and number. Uh, So just briefly, uh, five key observations about verse 31. Real brief. First, it's a time of peace. Notice that? 
They must have been so good. It's a church that had suffered a lot, been persecuted, living in constant fear for their lives. What a joy to just have a time of peace. And because it was a time of peace, or during this time of peace, Luke says it's a time of strengthening. The church is encouraged, and I'm weaving together the five things, but they're encouraged as the Holy Spirit is at work amongst them. There's an opportunity to be built up and matured in the faith. As I've been thinking about this passage uh, this week and even during my long service leave, I've got to say that I've been praying that this would be a part of DPC's story in the next couple of years, uh, that there would be a time of peace and strengthening for our church. Uh, Some of you are new to our church. Uh, Some of you have been around for a long time. We've all got different experiences But for lots of us, the last couple of years have been pretty hard, as in in general and as a part of the DPC community. Lots of pressures of COVID, meaning we couldn't gather together. You know, the last thing I want to do ever again is is kind of enter a post-church Zoom meeting. You know, like lots of pressures of COVID. Uh, All the pressures of relaunching church or the logistics of that or the effort of that on the back of a pandemic all the kind of hassles sorting through, vaccination, unvaccinated, undisclosed status, how do we all be unified and love one another? The hardship of saying bye to some dearly loved people in our church family. Many people after COVID, you know this, they decided to move to a different suburb or a different city. They couldn't come to DPC anymore. And then there were others, of course, who we really loved and we're grieving the loss of them. They've decided to leave DPC for different reasons. And on top of that, for for some of us, not all of us, there's been the incredibly important but tough conversations about how we can keep caring well for one another as a church family here at DPC, and in particular how the elders at DPC can keep ensuring that DPC is a place where the voice of women in particular, the voices of women are heard and listened to and understood, and that every woman in our church is cared for well. Some of you have been really involved with those conversations, some not at all. But all of this stuff together, uh, let alone anything that's been happening outside our lives of DPC, has meant, I know, that many of us are feeling pretty tired and banged up and a bit hurt. And and without, I absolutely don't want to minimise any of that hurt or tiredness or, or suggest that we should just move on. It's definitely stuff in some relationships that still needs to be worked through. But I hope all of us can join together in praying that there might be a time of peace and strengthening and encouragement ahead. A time where we would experience the Lord's blessing in our church, that we would be growing and maturing and encouraging, much like this church in Jerusalem. Please join me in praying for that. As I said, the church is encouraged. That was the third thing. Uh, They're they're living in the fear of the Lord, which I think we hear, we might think, oh, they're terrified of the Lord. But not so much. Uh, I I, I would term it, um, I read a great book on my long service leave called Rejoice and Tremble by Marcus Reeves. I think someone here recommended it to me, so thanks for that. But he makes the wonderful case that uh, the fear of the Lord is the state of trembling in awe and wonder at what the Lord has done for you. In particular, his amazing grace to you. And it did make me think about that line in Amazing Grace, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear. 
There's something about experiencing the grace of Jesus uh, that makes you go, uh, this is too wonderful to be true, but it actually is true. And so you tremble in awe and wonder before the Lord. That's this community in Jerusalem, living in the fear of the Lord. And with all this wonderful growth in maturity and, and strengthening and godliness, the church also grows in numbers. And hopefully that makes it clear that it's not inherently wrong to talk about a church, well, wanting a church to grow in numbers. Uh, not because we like stats, but because every person matters to God. And, uh, you know, that's why numbers matter. Like these, the, Luke recorded these people being added to the number of the church because they are people. Having said that, I haven't always got this right. I acknowledge this. Sometimes I've placed too much emphasis on growing in numbers and haven't been clear enough that actually we want healthy growth in numbers. We want growth in numbers that comes out of a healthy and maturing and fruitful church because that sort of growth in numbers like we see here is healthy growth in numbers. Well, let's wrap up. And what does belonging to Jesus bring into your life? That's the kind of question for today. I hope at the core, as I said, there's lots of things, but I hope at the core, uh, belonging to Jesus for you uh, means that even if you feel that you don't belong anywhere else in the world or with anyone else in the world, you feel that no one else understands you, no one else really knows you, no one else wants to be with you, if you feel like that, belonging to Jesus, I hope, means that you understand that you always belong with him, no matter what else is going on. As Paul says at the end of Romans 8, nothing can separate you from his love. That he is yours and you are his, not just in this moment today, but forever. You're bound together with an unbreakable union. And in today's passage, we've seen that as those who belong to Jesus like that, as those who are loved by Jesus like that, uh, then we belong to one another like that. In a deep and powerful union, we belong to Jesus' people and we commit together from that place of safety and security in Jesus' love to proclaiming his name and to suffering for, together for his name. Uh, let me pray. Uh, gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, we pray that in some small way uh, your spirit might have taken up your word this day such that we have truly uh, met with Jesus, your son, uh, that we might tremble before him again in awe and wonder at what he has done for us uh, and at the wonderful joys it is to belong to him. In his name we pray. Amen.